When Jesus came for us, he didn't ask us, could you vote blue or red? He just said, do you have a need? Yeah, I have a need. I'm a sinner. You know, people who love Jesus can disagree with me on secondary things, Mm -hmm. and we can still have a great relationship. You can't say that one political party has a monopoly on the kingdom of God. Welcome to Living Beyond Your Memes, where we try to help Christians get beyond talking points and pat answers and engage the world around us the way Jesus did. I'm your host, Brian LaCroix, and I'm joined by my good friend, Josh Letterell. Today's episode and next week's are very special. We welcome our first guest to Living Beyond Your Memes, and we are thrilled to bring you this interview. Our guest is Keith Simon, co-lead pastor and co-founder of The Crossing, a church in Columbus, Missouri. Keith is also the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Truth Over Tribe which we've mentioned from time to time here. Keith and his co-host Patrick Miller have recently released a book entitled Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. When we were offered the chance to interview Keith about the book, we were like, nah, we don't need anything like that. Who needs to hear from uh, somebody else about loving Jesus and others over your political affiliation? So we took a hard pass. Okay, actually, we jumped all over it. In fact, it was hard for me not to just fawn over Keith as he came on the show. All right. Maybe that's a little bit of of an exaggeration, but we had fun. When the book came out, I grabbed a copy for my Kindle immediately. And let me tell you, it's a very challenging and convicting read. I would suggest any of our listeners to buy it, read it, and buy it for others. And now that the midterm elections are over, it might be just the time to dive into it because the emotions won't be quite as high as before the election. Before getting into the interview, I want to give a great shout out, a big special shout out to my co-host, Josh. I accepted the invitation to interview Keith before talking to him and He didn't even blink an eye. He just made it happen, getting all the techie stuff ready to have a great and smooth interview. And then I want to also acknowledge our editor, Aaron, with EC Productions, who really made this thing polished and caused it to look like we actually knew what we were doing. And now, on to part one of this interview with Keith Simon. We are excited that uh, we are expanding our repertoire of our podcast here to include guests, and it's something we've wanted to do, and uh, we're really excited that our first guest... (laughs) is an author of a book I just finished and another podcaster uh, that we'll talk about here in a little bit. We have with us today Keith Simon, co-founder and co-lead pastor at The Crossing in Columbia, Missouri. Keith, we can't tell you how much we appreciate you being here. Wow, I'm really glad to be here, and I didn't realize I was the first guest, so I feel really honored. This is awesome. I hope I don't blow it for all the other future guests out there. Right. <laughs> we well, hope we don't blow it. Right, right. We, you know, we're hoping others will want to be a guest after this one. So Uh-oh. we appreciate you doing this for us, Keith. Keith, first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to being a pastor, and even how you came to the point where you wanted to address this whole issue of tribalism? Yeah, that that starts back in my childhood, all the way back to when I grew up in a home that really wasn't a Christian home. I went to church occasionally, but very, very infrequently. I didn't become a Christian until I was in college. And I became a Christian through a campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. They go by the Mm -hmm. name Crew now. And I had one of those lives. Everybody's got a different story. God works in different ways in different people's lives. But my story was one in which I changed pretty quickly, pretty radically. I remember I was in this fraternity house, and that's where I kind of dawned on me that I needed to start following Jesus. And that seemed really weird to everyone because I had 
been doing and living exactly like the guys in the fraternity house around me were. So they had no indication that there was this kind of spiritual turmoil going on in my life. But uh, I, I started looking around at those guys and I thought, I don't want to be in a few years where they are. They're older than me and I could see down the road and I thought my life's going to end up just like theirs. And I see what they're living for and how empty and lonely they are. So I mm. end up becoming a Christian and going around to all these fraternity guys and telling them, hey guys, I've become a Christian. I think I'm going to move out of the house. And that was a weird scene because their look on their face were like, what? You did what? You became a Christian? And uh, I move out of the house. I grow in my faith. I end up getting married as I graduate to a gal who had also become a Christian when she was in college in a sorority house on campus. We go on staff with a campus crusade. And after a few years on staff, I loved that organization. But after a few years, I thought, you know, I, I've got to learn more. If I really want to help people grow in their faith, I've got to, I've got to learn more about the Bible. So I go to seminary. And when I'm in seminary, I tell my wife, uh, I say, look, here's the deal. I'll do anything, anything except be a pastor. That's the only <laughs> thing I don't want to do is be a pastor. Because it's so dangerous bad, to say. Yeah, whatever bad stereotype you have of a pastor, I had those in my head. And mm -hmm. um, I end up, of course, becoming a pastor. Now, this is the only church I've ever been a pastor of. And mm -hmm. so we said, we're going to try to start a church for people who don't like church, because that's me. I didn't really like church. We wanted to start a church for people who thought, well, I would never go to church. And then we thought, well, let's just see if it would, if anybody else would be interested. And it turned out that people were interested and that people started coming. And like I said, this is the only church I've really ever been a pastor of. And I've had a great uh, 22 years here. That's awesome. You know, I came to Christ uh, through a campus ministry as well. It was the Navigators. Hmm. and uh, But some of Great my best friends in college were other members of Campus Crusade. And the staff members, too, were just awesome people. And this was back in the 80s. Can you describe the demographic and political culture of your area and your church. You describe yeah. it in the book a little bit. But. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to do that. Let me let me go back. I don't think I answered fully your first question. And, and oh. I think it will help set up our, our church and the kind of people that come is that I consider myself a recovering tribalist. I grew up in mm -hmm. a very political home. So while I'm not a Christian, I'm growing up, I'm I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm developing as a person, but my parents were super involved in state politics. And so there was really common for our house to be filled with judges and legislators and the governor and everybody would be in our house. When I went to college, I kind of took the opposite tack of my family. They had, they were more on the liberal side and I became pretty much a diehard conservative. And I even remember in 1992 when the Republicans won the House of Representatives and they hadn't won it, the National House, they hadn't won it in like 40 years. I was mm -hmm. sitting in the backyard with my friend. You know, it's November, so it's kind of chilly, right? <laughs> and I, when they, when they announced the Republicans had, had won the House, I take off my shirt, run around the yard, whooping and hollering. And th there was no alcohol involved either, right? <laughs> Just because I was so excited that the Republicans had had won. Because I think back in that moment of my life, I thought if if we can just get the right people elected and the right people in office, then mm -hmm. our country is going to do better. We're going to all, all be happier. All the problems are going to go away. And I say that now and it sounds so silly and naive, but I really think at that moment, I thought the main problem is that we didn't have the right people in office. Mm 
Well, uh-huh. a lot's changed in my life since then, and I've I've kind of come to grips with reality that Jesus's kingdom only comes with Jesus. It doesn't come <laughs> through a political party or a political candidate, right? It took me a long time to learn it, and I, I guess I'm still even learning it now. That leads us up to where we are n- in our church is that when we started The Crossing, we said we wanted to represent the community ethnically, uh, you know, economically, uh, and our community is very diverse politically. Mm-hmm. There was a several months ago, there was a thing in the New York Times where you could put your address in and it would show you uh, the, the percentage of registered Republicans and Democrats around you. And the whole point was that most of us live in a bubble, which, you know, we can talk about if you want, but a political bubble mm-hmm. where we live around people who think like us. But when I put my address in, it was 50 50. 50% mm. of the people around me are registered Republicans and 50% Democrat. So when we started our church, we said, hey, we're going to have a church that we hope is politically diverse. If we are telling our community about Jesus and people are responding, then we should have Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, for a long time in our church, that wasn't really an issue. It wasn't a problem. Now, you know, in 2016, it seemed like the world shifted and everything changed and we had to address those issues more. But for for the first what, 15 years uh, or more, it, it, was, it went fine. Uh, so we have a very diverse church, at least politically diverse church. At least it represents the city that we live in. And I think that's what a diverse church is. It represents the city that the church is located in. We can't be more diverse than our community. Right. I love that. I have a question. Um, and just to get your perspective, you came to faith later in life, uh, or at least in your early adulthood. And so did you, Brian. I grew up in a Christian household and I'm curious if you see a difference in tribalism between somebody who grew up in a Christian home Hmm. uh, versus somebody who came to faith later. Well, that's interesting. And they just kind of sit and think about it a little bit. Everybody has a different story and you can't stereotype any one group, but I, I think sometimes those of us who came to our political convictions later in life, there's a tendency to hold them more strongly. Uh, so it's kind of like the person who stopped smoking. They're then going around yelling at everybody who still smokes. You know, <laughs> They used to do it like a month ago, but now they stopped and they're going to go scold everyone who still smokes. And, and I feel a little bit like that when you come to your political convictions later. Sometimes you hold them a little too tightly and you look down on all the people who aren't quite as enlightened as you are. Now, I also think those who grew up in a home that is maybe a Christian and maybe they have one political bent that's emphasized in that home, that a little bit you kind of start to see the holes in it. You know, you see the hypocrisy of the church or you see the hypocrisy of your family or the political party you're in. Now, everybody has inconsistency. So it's not as if we are uh, discovering something new when we say that mom and dad or the church we're in has some holes in it. Of course we do. We all do. I'm just saying that maybe those who grew up in it, maybe they have a little bit more distance from the uh, political or religious uh, convictions of their home. Maybe they can see things a little more clearly, but I I don't know. I wouldn't want to speak for everybody who grew up in that situation. It's just kind of one of the observations that I've made. Sure. And perhaps when you're questioning some of your home, the way you grew up or the way your parents raised you, part of that might be at least taking a second look at some of the beliefs that you were handed down. Yeah. I, I think we all kind of do that, right? When we get to college or at some point in our life, we kind of go, are these my beliefs or are they someone else's? And 
you know, my kids are obviously pastor's kids and I tell them, you know, I'm already saving for therapy for them uh, <laughs> because, right. I mean, you know, you save for college, if you, you might maybe save for weddings. And if you're a pastor, you, you must save for therapy for your kids because you know, they're going to yeah. need it. I, I said that to one of my boys the other night, we have four kids, my wife and I have four kids. And he goes, I don't know if I need therapy for being a pastor's kid, but I might need therapy for being your kid. <laughs> and I laughed. That's honest. I thought that was a very good line. I thought it was a very good line. Yeah. Cool. So maybe you could define tribalism for our listeners a little bit. It's a, I think we, we hear the word, we probably instinctively know some things, but specifically as it regards maybe the, the political and religious landscape, how that term really applies. Well, yeah. And the funny thing about it is the other day we were in a conversation and we realized that we never really defined tribalism in the book. And we kind of <laughs> laughed at ourselves like, gosh, we're idiots. This is our first book. So we're still learning. Uh, and tribalism right now has a, a negative connotation to it. And so when you hear it used in a sentence, it's usually uh, meant pejoratively. But I don't know that it has to be. I mean, we are tribal creatures, and all that, I think, means is that we seek community. And we might mm -hmm. seek community around where we live, or we might seek community around a university that we all root for. You know, the, the fans of that university could be spread out over a nation or a major league sports team that we all root for. We might seek community around uh, a, a set of ideas. And I think that's okay. I mean, I think that's good. I don't think there's anything we can do about that. I think that's the way that we are wired. And yet, I think when we say tribalism today, what we mean is creating of a community that is self-righteous, that exalts itself and looks down on other people and has mm -hmm. hard boundaries around it, that sees the world in an us versus them. We're good and you're bad and mm -hmm. you want to win for your tribe. And so the most important thing is helping your tribe accomplish its objective. So of course, in the political arena, that means having more seats on the school board or the Supreme Court or in the state or national legislature. And we see ourselves as good, they're bad. And one of the effects of tribalism is that it changes our beliefs. In other words, first we ask, what does our tribe think? And then we say, mm -hmm. what do we think? We don't need to actually reason our way to our beliefs. First, we ask ourselves, well, what does my group think? And then we decide what we think about particular issues. And I, I, I think that's kind of uh, dangerous because mm -hmm. we don't really wrestle with issues. We just kind of go along with our with our tribe. And it kind of mm -hmm. gets into groupthink. And, you know, that that's always a little bit scary. It seems like that's uh, more likely to happen. I just I've noticed some thing since probably before 2016, but at least in the United States where around issues of immigration on the Republican side, they were very pro reform. And then as the, the tribe shifted its belief, people who identified as conservative very quickly shifted their beliefs and rhetoric around immigration, especially as Trump came on the scene. And I think the same thing happened on the left in regard to sexual sexuality that sort of thing where you can see a very quick shift from the you know early years of the obama administration for instance to now in terms of how people talk about that issue on on the left and in the democratic party well i think what they 
refer to it. I think the term is negative partisanship. In other words, it's not so much that I'm for something as much as I'm against something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm much more scared of the other party than I am excited about my party. And one of the ways that I come to my beliefs is that if you are in a different tribe and you hold X, then I'm going to hold Y. I don't even need to necessarily believe in why. I just know that you hold X and I can't be for that because you're the bad people. And so I do think on all kinds of issues like healthcare to immigration, you find people switching according to their party loyalty. Now, let's take something uh, like the vaccine. You know, why why not be controversial? Let's just get right after it. Here we go. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. So we, we, we remember how it played out. It's not as if it was that long ago, although our, our memory fades quicker than we maybe would like to admit. But President Trump is trying to get the vaccine and is saying we're going to have it by the end of that year, which was uh, uh, 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the end of 2020, he was going to have the, I told you memory fades, my memory is fading. You're going to have it by the end of 2020. And everybody said, no, no possible way. And if you remember, uh, now President Biden and now Vice President Harris, back then candidates, were kind of saying, well, hey, I don't know if I'd put that in my body. You know, I don't know if this vac- Trump vaccine, maybe they're doing it too quickly. Maybe they're just doing it for political reasons, you know, trying to get this vaccine. Maybe it's not going to be tested enough. I don't know if I'd put put that in me. They were kind of sowing doubt about the credibility of this vaccine and the efficacy of it. Well, mm-hmm. as soon as they win the election, they then turn around and say, hey, this vaccine's awesome. We need to all get the vaccine. And the people who supported Pres- President Trump then be- began to look at the vaccine as a little suspicious of it, right? So mm-hmm. imagine President Trump had won, won that election. You could almost mm-hmm. imagine a universe where the the people who supported him, Republicans, were all very gung-ho on the vaccine and taking mm-hmm. it, and the people who are Democrats were avoiding it. But because of who won that election, that totally flipped, and people who were more Democratic were more eager for the vaccine, and Republicans not so much. So, mm-hmm. so I think that shows that uh, we come to our beliefs more in opposition to the other party than something that we can really be excited about it, explained and defend. And it, it's pretty obvious that that happened once you look back and it seems silly, but at the same time, it has real world consequences for society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and, I mean, if you just look yeah. at the vaccine, the people who, I, I know there's tons of controversy about it. Yes, I completely agree that the vaccine does not stop transmission, but clearly the vaccine keeps people from being hospitalized and dying. I'm not saying that mm-hmm. we were all told the exact truth about the vaccine or anything like that because there was a lot of mm-hmm. confusion or misinformation about it. I totally get it. But I'm just saying that whether you have that vaccine or not might end up determining whether you are in the hospital or, or die from COVID-related illnesses. Right. So we see that on a political scale. How do you see that played out within the body of Christ in different churches? How do you see Christians displaying tribalism i guess you you talk a lot about the you know the donkey and the elephant but there's a lot of tribalism between let's say calvinists or arminians or (laughs) any other divide within the church Uh, can you speak to that a little bit yeah absolutely one of the things that i found in my life is that it was really good for me to go to 
uh, on staff with Campus Crusade before I went to seminary. Because when I was on staff with Campus Crusade, I met all these Christians from all these varied backgrounds. And I really respected them and saw how God was at work in their life and in their ministry. And then I went to seminary and I came to my theological convictions. Now, because I'd seen all these people I respected that came from a wide variety of opinions, my convictions never got to trump that God was at work in their life. In other words, I I think if you go to seminary first and you come to these uh, hard theological convictions, then you go out into the Christian life and you Mm -hmm. say, well, God's only at work really at work. I mean, really, really at work in certain kinds of churches, Calvinist mm-hmm. churches, Reformed churches, uh, Presbyterian churches, or or maybe the opposite, where, whatever your tradition is. Um, mm-hmm. But I think when you've seen God at work in all kinds of different people, then you go, okay, look, here's what I believe. And I really do think these theological convictions are true, and I could explain them and defend them from the Bible. But I know a lot of people who don't agree with me, who are godly, humble, kind, caring, compassionate people who are really growing in their faith and doing great things inside the kingdom of God. And mm-hmm. so I, I think it causes you to hold your convictions more humbly. And, and yeah. that's at least the kind of person I want I want to be is somebody who holds those convictions. Uh, uh, I, I believe them, but I, I also know I might be wrong. Yeah. And I think uh, that's an important point because I, I've come to the point where I have very few black and white essentials Mm-hmm. Uh, that I'm willing to die for, you know, mm-hmm. scripture is the word of God, Jesus, the Trinity, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus died, rose again, coming again, very, you know, so just bedrock basic things. And so it's easy for me to fellowship with other believers who maybe disagree with me on things like uh, eternal security or dispensationalism or things like that. Mm-hmm. And it also helps me to see that, you know, people who love Jesus can disagree with me on secondary things mm-hmm. and we can still be have a great relationship uh, and love each other as brothers and sisters in the, in the body. I'd like to transition a little bit here. Um, one of the things I appreciate about your podcast and especially when you talk about uh, the, the intro to your podcast always has those audio snippets <laughs> and it's got one person saying, you know, you can't possibly be a Christian and vote Republican. And then the other person, you know, how can you be a Christian and not vote uh, and, and vote Democrat? Right. In a previous election here, uh, two years ago, I voted for um, a pro-life Democrat, and mm-hmm. I'm normally lean Republican. I'm an independent uh, personally, but uh, and it was easy for me to see that this guy loved Jesus, mm-hmm. and he wanted to have an impact within his party and in the country on that very important issue. And um, but I, you know. I think this is the first public declaration I've ever made of that. <laughs> so this might be bad for your podcast. This career. might be our last episode. Thank you, Keith, for being here. Um, but uh, but you know people like this. Josh and I both know people like this that you they just honestly believe those that you cannot vote Democrat. And around here, it's going to be mostly red people saying you cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat. And how do you respond to people like that? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you want to get in a conversation and try to figure out where they're coming from and and why they think that. And oftentimes, it comes down to the issue of abortion mm-hmm. or sexual ethics. In other words, there's a couple issues that are kind of the issues that trump every other issue. And mm-hmm. I I think uh, if you 
are willing to look at the world through a different set of eyes. So, for example, what are the kinds of things that God cares about? Well, that we know in the Bible that are political issues today. Well, we know he cares about poverty. I mean, the Bible's yeah. full of of the calls to look out for the vulnerable, and that's the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. We know that God cares about sexual ethics. That's clear. We know he cares about life. We know he cares about racial justice. Uh, the Bible is full of uh, commands and really kind of the whole argument of a lot of the epistles is about the reconciliation of Jew Gentile and the, mm-hmm. and the Samaritan uh, Jew issue that's front and center in a lot of the stories in the gospel. So we mm-hmm. know God cares about these things and they're political issues today. Well, I don't think one party has a monopoly on kind of the biblical perspective on any of those four issues. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, a person who is a Christian and a committed Republican could probably rightly say that overall, overall, generally speaking, that the Republicans have a better stance on sexual ethics and life. But I think a person who's a Democrat could say, I think we've got the better, more Christian perspective on racial justice and on poverty. Now, of course, there'd be mm-hmm. lots of disagreements back and forth. I get it. But the point mm-hmm. is that you can't say that one political party has a monopoly on the kingdom of God. You don't find right. the kingdom of God expressed in any of those platforms. So so now, how do you get to weigh those? I mean, is racial justice more or less important than sexual ethics? Or is that more or less important than the life abortion issue? I mean, I, I just don't know that we can say clearly, here's the order of importance. So not only do Christians have different views on some of these issues, but they put them in different order of importance. And when mm-hmm. a Christian goes into the voting booth, those come out. Now, I, I think it's dangerous to say that Christians have to vote for this political party or you're going to doubt their faith. That right. might be a definition of a political idolatry or a political tribalism. If mm-hmm. somebody tells you that if somebody who, who goes to your church that you, you know, best you can tell they're a Christian and they tell you that they voted for the other party, do you immediately mm-hmm. doubt their faith? Well, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> happens all the time. Yeah. That's a problem, right? Because maybe they're seeing things. Maybe they really are a genuine Christian who's growing their faith, and they're seeing some things that you're not seeing. I just don't want to cast aspersions on people's faith because they don't see the political arena quite like I do. Right. And I, I think some of it can be uh, even geographical. Um, Eugene Cho's book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, mm-hmm. he points out how in the Seattle area where he lives— it's incredibly blue, and the perspective for many evangelical Christians in that geographical sense is that, well, obviously you vote Democrat, and and I think it's because they're looking at the the uh, poverty issues and social racial justice mm-hmm. issues that you pointed out, uh, whereas the red people who would say, well, you obviously need to vote Republican, are seeing the sexual ethics and the abortion issues as ranking higher than others. I, you make such a good point as to those four items and how we prioritize them is going to make a big difference in how we how we vote. Yeah, and, and I'm how sure we there's prioritize. Even, oh, go ahead. Well, I'd say that I mean, sure, there's even more issues that we could lay out here that the Bible mm-hmm. has an is- a clear stance on. I just know those four mm-hmm. immediately jump off to me. But I also think that there's a a sense in which. One reason that we think that all Christians have to vote one way or the other, depending on where you live, is because we don't know good people 
and good Christians, faithful Christians who are a part of a different party. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we live in uh, a bubble. We talked a little bit earlier about living in these bubbles where everybody who lives around us thinks like we do and they vote like we do. Uh, there's uh, political science talk about landslide counties and a landslide county is any county in which the previous presidential election, one candidate won by at least 20 percentage points. Okay, so this is a county that has been really dominated either blue or red. It sounds like you guys probably live in a red county, a landslide county. Uh, and, And when you live inside of a landslide county, you're living around people who think like you do. Now, it used to be that America didn't have very many landslide counties. Uh, again, a county in which mm-hmm. one candidate won by at least 20 points. But mm-hmm. over the last 20, 30 years, we've seen a huge increase in the number of landslide counties as people sort themselves out to live around people who are more like them. So now mm-hmm. 57% of Americans live in a landslide county. I was blown away by that in your book uh, when, I, when I read that. Isn't that Just amazing? Just the transition. It was, Yeah. And, and that means that, that uh, we don't know people who are, let's say, let's say you live in a landslide red county. Well, you don't know people who are Democrats that you think, man, these are really good people. And that maybe they're really good Christians. Maybe they're in my church or whatever. You don't have this kind of respect for them. You don't listen to them and hear their heart. So you immediately begin to label them. It's easy to label them, at least, as bad people, people who don't quite get it. And, and I think the same problem happens. You see it in the Gospels. You see the Jews and Samaritans, they didn't know each other, right? Remember in Luke 9 when Jesus and his disciples are headed to Jerusalem and they want to stop overnight in the Samaritan village and the Samaritans say no. So James and John, they look at Jesus and they go, well, should we just kind of call down fire from heaven? Now imagine this. Imagine you're looking at the Prince of Peace saying, should we napalm these people? But what, they don't get what Jesus is about. They think Jesus is going to Rome or to Jerusalem to defeat the Romans. Instead, he's going there to die for the Romans. And he's even going there to die for the Samaritans. And, and so here, James and John now say it's after the resurrection. They're, they're, they're out proclaiming the name of Christ. Samaritans are coming to faith in Christ. And w- <laughs> what you see is that, that they're probably in the same church worshiping Jesus with some of the same Samaritans that they had wanted to kill, you know, a few months earlier. So when we don't know people, because, you know, James and John, they didn't know any Samaritans. They, they, they lived in their own villages. They worshiped in their own different temples. There was complete separation from it. It's easy to demonize and want to destroy people you don't know. But when you're mm-hmm. worshiping in the same church with them, when they're your neighbors, when you recognize that these are good people who maybe I disagree with, but they're trying mm-hmm. to follow Jesus just like I am, or they're trying to do what's good for their family, or they're trying to mm-hmm. be good citizens, work hard in their job, then it's harder to fall into the trap of thinking, well, these are bad people who need to be nuked. Mm -hmm. So you've done a good job of modeling that in your church and you serve a community that's fairly evenly represented between, at least in our country, the left and the right. How does a church who is in, let's say, a landslide county Hmm. do that uh, when there isn't necessarily as much of an opportunity potentially? Yeah, I, I think that's good because you, when, when you live in a landslide county and you're going to have people who are more like you around it. So now how do I minister to these people in a way that puts Jesus over politics? 
that puts the kingdom of God over a political kingdom? I think that's a great question, and that's not my situation, so I hesitate to offer pastors in that situation too much advice. But let me say something we've done that I think has helped us, and my guess is transferable anywhere, and that is that we've tried to have radical generosity toward people who are different than us. So, for example, every Christmas and Easter for the last few years, we've been saying, hey, what's a big project that we could take on to try to help meet needs in our area? So a a few years ago on Easter, we realized that medical debt was just crushing people, uh, you know, causing (laughs) them to go bankrupt. That's one of the leading causes of bankruptcy. So we partnered with a group who is able to buy the medical debt cheaper uh, for people who are at or below the poverty line. And we said, if we raised, I think it was like, I think it was like, you know, $50,000, $75,000, we could pay off the medical debt in our county for people who fell below a certain income level. Well, our church responded far more than I thought. We raised uh, close to $450,000 in 10 days, and we ended up paying off, because of the multiplier effect, almost $50 million of medical debt in 38 counties in our state. Now, when we were able to do that and send out a letter to them that said, Jesus paid our debt, and we want to help you by paying your debt, we didn't ask, are you gay or straight? Did you vote red or blue? Are you black or white or Latina or uh, Asian? We didn't ask any of those questions. What generation are you part of? We just said, do you have a need? And the reason we did that, then we want to meet your need. The reason we did that is because when Jesus came for us, he didn't ask us, did you vote blue or red? You know, Mm -hmm. how old are you? What's your uh, sexuality? He just said, do you have a need? Yeah, I have a need. I'm a sinner. Then I've come Mm -hmm. to meet your need in in the cross. So as we've been able to show radical generosity to people in our community, what it shows is our our community that we can love people really different than us and welcome them in and learn from them and have them be a part of our church. And it's pretty cool to see it happen. And when you see it happen, those walls get broken down. That's awesome. One of the things I appreciate about your your podcast so much is the, the wide variety of guests that you have. You have non-Christians on your show. You have gay people on your show. You've had many people that many Christians in our red area tribe would just not be comfortable with. And they might say, well, I'm not going to listen to that because he has these kind of people. Well, I'm like, I love that. I also enjoyed your interview with Greg Locke. I just thought that was a great interview because that was an intentional attempt by you guys to visit with somebody that many of us have heard about and have seen on YouTube, but don't really know at a very deep level. And your interview with him, I thought was very enlightening into him. And I think, as you mentioned at the end of that episode, that, you know, you're two people who love Jesus very much. Uh, There's no question that Greg Locke loves Jesus. We can disagree on methodology. We can disagree on rhetoric, uh, things like that. But just the fact that you reached out to him to say, can we talk? And he accepted. I just thought was amazing. I think it's valuable that we listen to people we disagree with, uh, or at least 
people outside of our immediate little tribe, maybe even as a different Christian tradition, as Josh mentioned earlier, can you explain why it's a good idea to listen to people who aren't part of your tribe and why you do it so often on your show? Yeah. I love it. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. We do try to have guests on who are interesting and have something to say, and we're more prone to have people on who disagree with us. Partly, I think that's it's my personality, Patrick's personality, is that I seek out people who disagree with me almost instinctually. I think growing up in the home I did where uh, I was more conservative than anyone else in my family, there was this spirit there that you could hold whatever belief you had, but you had to be able to defend it and explain it. So I've always sought out to hear the best argument from the other side. If you looked at the magazines and the newspapers that I read, you would probably think that I am a hardcore liberal. I'm not. I, I think of myself as a conservative. I don't know if I can think of myself as a Republican anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. That seems to be a, a different brand than a conservative. And I've changed my mind on a lot of issues, so I'm, I'm probably a little more heterodox than I've ever been in my life. But I seek out people who uh, disagree because I think that either I learn something and I maybe need to change my mind on stuff because mm -hmm. I, I'm not right, or I can sharpen my uh, beliefs. I can go, okay, I feel better about my beliefs because I've taken the best arguments that the other side has and I still kind of hold it, or I need to tweak my beliefs. Also, I, I'm in the ministry, I want to persuade people to follow Jesus. And mm -hmm. I don't know that you can persuade people to follow Jesus if you don't know what they believe. So Good. Yep. for example, one of the things I've been trying to read more of lately is what I would call the hardcore Christian nationalist, because I want that person to follow Jesus too. And mm -hmm. I need to understand mm -hmm. where they are, because that's not where I'm coming from, but I need to understand what they believe. So I, I love the wide variety of guests we have on. We have a team who helps make that happen and they reach out and people are surprisingly uh, willing to come on and discuss their ideas and their book. Uh, I <laughs> think next, I, I think one of the uh, books I read the be that I liked most is the, this year is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And <laughs> I had a chance to talk to a British non-Christian author named Louise Perry. And uh, so we we'd had her on recently where we just got to talk to her about why is she is not a Christian against the sexual revolution? Why does she see that as being so bad for women? I think the most interesting conversations on right now are happening on the left between mm -hmm. what I would call the traditional left and the hardcore maybe woke left is what some people mm -hmm. call them. And yeah. I think those arguments over there are the most interesting things happening. So I try to have my ear pressed to that conversation so I can learn from it. Excellent. What podcasts do you listen to? Oh, wow. I love podcasts. I love reading. I am a, I'm an addict on some of this stuff <laughs> to the point where it's, it's not even helpful. Uh, <laughs> do you ever think like you just do something too much? And, uh, I, this is one of my bad habits is I do this too much. I think the best podcast out there, uh, is, um, Barry Weiss has a podcast called honestly. Are you familiar with her? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. She, she was at the Wall Street Journal, went over the New York Times, left the New York Times, kind of was run out by the staff, had a, yes, uh, I do remember that story, a resignation letter that was fire. 
Uh, and she started kind of her own media company. And right now it's an issue. It's a blog and a podcast, but it seems to be growing exponentially. Now here's a person who's Jewish, who's on the center left would be my best guess to label her. She's a lesbian married to a woman and uh, through medical technology just had a baby. Uh, mm. So how in the world did she become to me my favorite listen when I am almost the opposite on absolutely everything that she uh, is? And I think she has great conversations. I think she knows how to ask great questions. I think she has interesting people on. She's trying to create an environment where people can exchange ideas without the threat of cancellation, without the threat of um, where you're going to be personally attacked. She's willing mm -hmm. to speak truth to her tribe. And I think that's that courageousness is attractive and contagious. Cool. It reminds me a little bit of a conversation I saw recently between uh, Adam Davidson, who is a longtime NPR host, mm -hmm. and Sean McDowell. And mm -hmm. they actually had two conversations where they interviewed each other. And I was just so impressed with how they both actually were gracious toward one another and how they engaged in a, in a really constructive and I would say loving and respectful way. I haven't heard that one, but it sounds like something that would be right up my alley. And that ends this portion of the interview. Next week, we'll catch the rest of this time with Keith Simon. In the meantime, have a great week. Go out and buy this book, read it, and get convicted. Living Beyond Your Memes is a production of Truth Love Media and Discipleship DNA. Editing by EC Productions. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get in touch with Brian LaCroix at DiscipleshipDNA.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you in the next episode.